Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Anya Hensi. She is a PhD student at NUI Maynooth. Her thesis is a comparative study of the lives of Roman Catholic and Church of Ireland clergymen in the Diocese of South East Ireland between 1550 and 1650. Her paper is entitled An Illegal Profession, the Formation of a Corporate Identity for Roman Catholic Priests in South East Ireland between 1560 and 1641. Professor Aidan Clark has described the medieval Irish priest as a peasant among peasants. And even by the middle of the 16th century, there were very few Irish clergymen on either side of the obviously still rather ill-defined confessional divide with sufficient education or training to enable them to capably defend and propagate their version of the Christian faith. In the 1560s, a survey carried out for the Vatican revealed that there were no more than 10 Catholic priests in the entire country with a theological qualification and none at all with any skill in canon law. The Council of Trent, which sat between 1545 and 1563, recognised that the battle for souls throughout Christian Europe could only be won with the aid of a rigorously prepared clergy operating within organised and disciplined diocesan structures. This conviction was reflected in the decrees and edicts of the Council, and Charles Parker describes the Tridentine model of a priest as a combination of literate preacher, paternal pastor and strict confessor bringing to the body of the clergy a corporate identity that should see them far removed from their medieval predecessors. And incidentally, for the purpose of this paper um, this morning, I'm defining the term corporate identity as the manner in which an organisation is presented to or perceived by its members and by the public. These aspirations for the development of the Catholic clergy closely mirror the components regarded as necessary for the professionalisation of any group. Rosemary O'Day defines a profession as a body of people who offer a service to clients on the basis of expertise, ground their expertise and authority in a body of theoretical knowledge as well as practical skill, claim a monopoly, follow a code of ethics in performing their services, have an internal organisation that disciplines its members, and have a large degree of autonomy in their work as well as an evident esprit de corps. While the church authorities in Rome may not have encouraged any measure of autonomy in the work of individual priests, preferring to emphasise the importance of discipline and obedience to one's superiors, in general I believe that this list reflects the objectives of Trent for the provision of a well-functioning dynamic pastoral ministry to counter the threat of Protestantism. Within the Catholic countries of Europe, of mainland Europe, the aims of church and state were usually concurrent with control of the spiritual and temporal behaviour of the people among their core functions. The position in Ireland, however, was very different. Following the passing of the 1560 Acts of Supremacy and Uniformity, the practice of Catholicism was proscribed here, and in the succeeding century, priests who continued to minister on the island were subject to varying degrees of persecution and were often forced to flee the country. The degree to which the Irish Catholic clergy were able to fulfil the aspirations of professionalisation through education and organisation in the face of these challenges is the subject of my paper today. Uh, my research has centred, uh, for my thesis, has centred on the diocese of the southeast of the country, Ferns, Lachlan and Osry in the Archdiocese of Dublin, and Cashel, Emley, Waterford and Lismore in the Archdiocese of Cashel. The burgeoning trade relationships that existed between the port towns of this region, 
Waterford, New Ross and Wexford particularly, and continental Europe, particularly Spain and France, Combined with the strong commercial and family associations that connected these towns to their inland neighbours in Kilkenny and Tipperary, meant that South East Ireland was likely to be to the forefront in the absorption of any new developments emanating from the Vatican and the European universities with regard to preparation for and organisation of the work of the Irish mission. Trent recognised that education was a key component in imbuing new and prospective priests with the spirit of the Counter-Reformation, and in providing them with a theoretical framework within which they could carry out their pastoral duties. Because the practice of Catholicism was illegal in Ireland, it was not possible for the network of seminaries envisaged by Trent to be established within the country. So the solution was found in the institution of Irish colleges attached to the Catholic universities of Spain, Portugal, France, Flanders and further afield. Even before the establishment of the Irish colleges, there was already a considerable presence of Irish clerical students on the continent. As early as 1577, Sir William Drury, the President of Munster, wrote to the Queen's Secretary of State, claiming that there were a great number of students from Waterford in Leuven at the charge of their friends and fathers. In the 1580s, there were Irish students in Salamanca, Valladolid, Lisbon, and especially in Santiago de Compostela, where the exiled Bishop of Austria, Thomas Strong, and his nephew, Thomas White, lived from 1582 with a small group who lived off charity and attended the local university. Government concern about the exodus of young men to Europe was reflected in the legislation that established Trinity College Dublin in 1592, whereby knowledge and civilities might be increased by the instruction of our people there, whereof many have usually heretofore used to travel on to France, Italy and Spain to get learning in such foreign universities where they may have been infected with popery and other ill qualities and so become evil subjects. The education of young Irishmen specifically for a return to the Irish mission was formalised with the founding of the Irish colleges from the 1570s, with a network developing across France and then Iberia and Flanders by the first half of the 17th century. The oaths that students were obliged to take on arrival illustrate that the primary purpose of these colleges was the provision of trained pastors who would return to Ireland. Each student enrolling in Salamanca was expected to sign an oath promising to obey the directions of his superiors regarding proceeding home to the Irish mission. And this is a copy of the oath signed by John Roth of Kilkenny on the 24th of December 1604 on his entry to Salamanca. Philip III of Spain made a grant of £10 to each student only to be paid when he returned to Ireland. A similar oath to the Salamanca oath was taken by students in the Irish seminary in Toulouse, and the missionary intent of the Irish College at Douai was illustrated by the emphasis it placed on the teaching of Irish to non-Irish speakers to enable them to preach wherever they were situated on their return to Ireland. Because secrecy was imperative in the conduct of the Irish mission, it is very difficult to assess how successful the colleges were in fulfilling their objective of sending trained, preachers, trained priests back to Ireland in significant numbers. There are also considerable discrepancies in the figures advanced by different sources. In his diary, the first rector of the college in Salamanca, Thomas White, claimed that of the students who enrolled there in the first 19 years, 68 returned to Ireland. And Paul Sherlock, who was rector in 1631, wrote that the college had sent more than 300 labourers to the vineyard in Ireland. However, this number must be queried as the Salamanca papers give the names of only 145 students who had even entered the college by 1632. The latter decades of the 16th century did not see a dramatic increase in the number of continentally educated priests returning to Ireland. 
Of those clerics who were definitely resident in the southeast before 1600, we know of only 17 who had attended a continental university. However, PJ Cornish believes that those who did return from Europe as early as 1580 were able to stiffen any older clergy who were resistant to the changes being imposed by Trent. A significant growth in the numbers coming back to the mission is notable from the early 1600s. St. Anthony's Franciscan College was founded in Louvain in 1607, and within 10 years of its foundation, it claimed to have sent 31 trained Franciscan preachers back to Ireland. Jérôme Nillis claims that most of the Leuven theologians came home to pastoral ministry in their native diocese, although he does add that students who took higher theology degrees usually remained in the university or taught in other colleges on the continent. Walter Cheevers and Philip Devereux of Ferns had certainly returned from Leuven by 1617, while another alumnus and another another Thomas Strong was guardian of Waterford Friary in 1629. Anthony Purcell, who was in Leuven in 1617, was back in the southeast by 1629, and he was guardian of Waterford in 1647. Of the 450 priests who were definitely working in the southeast between 1600 and 1650, at least 136, and that is a very conservative estimate. They are the people who were definitely had definitely attended a university on the continent. At least 136 had studied at a continental university. And it is to be expected that they carried home with them the skills, knowledge and theological certainties that would enable them to successfully challenge the agents of the established state church and persuade the majority of the people to pledge their loyalty to Catholicism. The role of the diocesan bishop was regarded by Trent as key to the imposition of the demanding new discipline expected of parochial Catholic clergy. To this end, the parish was to be the main instrument used for the salvation of souls, with the archbishop and his suffragans defining boundaries, establishing new parishes where necessary, ensuring that suitably trained ministers were appointed and regularly supervised. Each secular priest was expected to live among his parishioners, to know his congregation, and to be an example to them in word and in work, while preaching, instructing and administering the sacraments. However, in a country where the practice of Catholicism was proscribed, even the presence of bishops appointed by Rome was rare until the more tolerant years of the 1620s. The appointment of vicars apostolic was considered both safer and less provocative from the 1570s. David Carney, who was appointed Archbishop of Cashel in 1603, was believed to be one of only two Rome-appointed bishops resident in the country in 1611, And in 1609, he described a clerical lifestyle that was still very far removed from the Tridentine ideal. We go around from one city to another dressed in secular clothes, only using the longer dress at the altar. And following our Redeemer's Council, we fly from one town to another, generally a very distant one. It is at night that we perform all the sacred functions, celebrate Mass, give exhortations to the faithful, confer holy orders, bless the chrism, administer the sacrament of confirmation, and discharge, in a word, all our ecclesiastical duties. However, there is also evidence that around this time, the vicars and bishops had set about organising their diocese in a pragmatic fashion, designed to ensure that all the people of the country had access to the services of a priest. By 1610, English representatives in Ireland believed that the Catholic Church had already succeeded in establishing these structures. In that year, Sir Toby Caulfield wrote to the Lord Deputy that The Catholics had appointed in every bishopric in Ireland a general vicar who must appoint a curate in every parish throughout all the diocese. They have archdeacons, deans, officers, as they were in times past. 
The following year, Andrew Knox, Archbishop of the Scottish Isles, told the Archbishop of Canterbury that there is no diocese, but it has a bishop appointed and consecrated by the Pope, nor province that wants an archbishop, nor parish without priest, all actually serving their time at the Pope's discretion and plenteously sustained by the people. Supporting guidelines for those clerics who who operated under under the difficult conditions prevalent in Ireland at the time were provided at home by the provincial synods, which were regularly convened in the Archdiocese of Dublin and Cashel in the first 40 years of the 17th century. Between 1606 and 1632, six synods were held in Cashel and three in Dublin, as well as two interprovincial meetings of the Dublin and Cashel hierarchies in 1624 and 1629. Among the statutes passed in 1614 was a stipulation that a priest was to be assigned to each parish, although any district left vacant due to the lack of clerics could be filled by a neighbouring parish priest on the understanding that he gave precedence to the congregation to which he was first appointed. Pastors were exhorted to instruct the faithful in the catechism, never failing to teach the inhabitants of houses where they were sheltered and maintained. These decrees were a reinforcement to the obligations imposed by the Council of Trent on the parish priest to know his people and be an example to them in word and in work, to preach to them and instruct them in the faith and to administer the sacraments. The Synod prohibited the absence of priests from their parishes, especially on Sundays and feast days, and ordered that any such non-attendance was to be covered by another cleric approved by the bishop or vicar. On the subject of clerical behaviour, priests were forbidden to attend fairs, weddings, funerals or anniversaries of deaths unless invited. They were to wear clothing that clearly distinguished them from the laity and were to avoid concubinage, fornication, drunkenness, communal drinking, drink challenges, entrance into taverns and any association with suspect women. The synods also attempted to address another issue that would become increasingly contentious in the following decades, decreeing that ordinaries, in cooperation with religious superiors, could appoint regular clergy to parochial pastoral duties in cases where there was a scarcity of secular priests. At the same time, the synods attempted to control the behaviour of regulars who might undertake these duties without permission from their superiors or without the consent of the bishop. The meetings of 1624 and 1640 expressly forbade any vagrant cleric to administer the sacraments without licence. With the realisation that different structures needed to be put in place to serve the Catholic populations in states that were governed by Protestant rulers... The Vatican-appointed nuncio in Flanders was charged with monitoring events in England, Scotland and Ireland. And in 1622, the regulation of church business in non-Catholic jurisdictions was further streamlined with the erection of the Congregation de Propaganda Fide within the Vatican. By 1636, it was deemed necessary to form a dedicated subcommittee of the congregation to deal with Irish affairs. The nunciator in Brussels took on a new importance as a connecting link between Propaganda Fide and Ireland with information regarding the mission being exchanged on a weekly basis. Communication between Rome and Ireland was also facilitated by the presence in the Vatican City of Irish priests, both secular and regular, who acted as conduits of information and as unofficial agents agents of the Irish hierarchy. And the most influential of these ambassadorial figures was probably the Waterford Franciscan Luke Wadding, the founder of St Isidore's College. Thus armed with directions from Rome and their own synodal decrees, the Catholic hierarchy set about systematically organising their diocesan clergy. It was not easy to translate aspirations into reality, although there is evidence that the work of the secular clergy was being organised as far as was possible along the lines envisaged by Trent by the 1620s. Daniel O'Druhan, the vicar apostolic of Ferns, had evidently succeeded in imposing a considerable level of organisation on his clergy by the time of the appointment of John Rothe, 
who took up his position as bishop in, or John Roach, I'm sorry, uh, who took up his position as bishop in 1629. In May 1631, Roach wrote that the parochial, oops, sorry, he's gone missing on me there somewhere. Uh, the parochial districts are everywhere well defined, and pastors are assigned to each of them who since the confiscation of their own houses wander about residing here and there in some spots known to the faithful and where they may be regular, readily found for the administration of the sacraments and the exercise of their ecclesiastical functions. Roach took the diocesan organisation a step further in 1632 when he informed Propaganda Fide of his intention to appoint five of his senior clergy to positions as cathedral canons, more to thwart the inopportune ambition of the ignorant young priests of other dioceses than because he regarded this move as a necessity. David Roth's arrival in Kilkenny in 1609 as vicar general and later as bishop was the first in a series of appointments that would lead to what Thomas O'Connor has described as a generation of extraordinarily gifted bishops, continentally educated, multilingual, theologically engaged and pastorally innovative. By 1635, Roth reported to Rome that his diocese was well organised and sufficiently staffed with more than 30 pastoral clergy and three personal chaplains in the rural parishes, while eight secular priests worked in Kilkenny City, which was also home to numerous regular clergy. As in Ferns, cathedral canons had been appointed to Austria by 1631. Thomas Roth was vicar general, Thomas Honrahan was archdeacon, and Marcus Archdeacon was precentor. The bishop also selected eight priests as vicars foran, or deans, who had responsibility for subdivided regions of the diocese. They were required to assemble the clergy of their deanery on a regular basis to discuss contentious issues that may have arisen, to study and prescribe reading material, and to deal with matters of clerical dispute. And in this manner, the better educated priests could exercise a measure of influence and supervision over their colleagues. The vicars for Anne and the urban clergy also convened four times a year to consider pastoral matters, and Roth expected all of his secular clergy to attend an annual week-long retreat with the Jesuit priest. Despite the fact that there were more than 60 named priests in Waterford and Lismore in 1610, there is no record of parochial organisation until the appointment of Patrick Comerford to the see in 1629. The following year, he informed Cardinal Ludovisi in Propaganda Fide that he had 40 secular clergies, 35 of whom have the care of souls in their own parishes. However, in contrast to John Roach's high praise for the clergy in Ferns, Comerford had a poor opinion of his pastors, describing most of them to Luke Wadding in 1631 as idle, contenting themselves to say Mass in the morning and until midnight to continue either playing or drinking or vagabonding. And as most of them are unlearned, they make a trade of being ecclesiasticals thereby to live idle, sit among the best, go well clad, and if I would say it, swagger. And alas, very few spend one hour in a twelve-month to teach the Christian doctrine or instruct younger children. By 1639, he did believe that the position had improved. Of the 59 secular priests in his jurisdiction, 45 administered parishes in a praiseworthy, sensible manner, while the other 14 were chaplains in private Catholic homes. And like Roth, he had divided his diocese into deaneries, whose members held conferences six times a year. While diocesan structures and supports for secular priests were probably not consolidated until at least the second half of the 1620s, some of the regular orders had begun to reorganise earlier. Following the dissolution of their communities, the Franciscan friars continued to maintain a presence in the region, but mainly as individuals living with relatives and supporters. However, by 1618, they had re-established communities in Kilkenny, New Ross, Wexford, Clonmel, Waterford and Cashel, often living together in rented houses or in premises donated by well-wishers. 
1603, between 1603 and 1615, the Dominicans established communities in Kilkenny and Waterford, and by 1622 there were seven friars in each house. They founded a house in Cashel in 1638. During this period, the Cistercian monks managed to maintain an almost continual presence at the Monastery of Holy Cross in Cashel, and were also present in or near Hoare and Kilcooley abbeys in the same diocese, despite both properties having been granted to the Earl of Ormond after the dissolution. A Cistercian presence was also sustained in or near Inishlaunacht in Lismore, Abbey Leaks and Baltinglass in Lachlan, and Dumbrody in Ferns. While individual Jesuit priests had returned to the southeast by the end of the 16th century, they only began to organise themselves into communities around 1604, when Pater Ibernius wrote to his father-general describing their early efforts at organisation. We who are here of the society met together in a certain place to treat and consult about the mode in which we should proceed and the manner in which we could best meet the great necessity we see about us in this land, dividing, us, um, dividing it among the few there are of us till our Lord God should send some more labourers. And in the succeeding years between 1607 and 1617, they set up houses in Clonmel, New Ross, Cashel, Waterford and Kilkenny, also establishing schools and sodalities. Despite these efforts at organisation, the autonomy of Catholic priests in the region continued to be compromised by their dependents on relatives and neighbours for shelter and support. Because all churches, all churches and other religious property had passed into the hands of the Protestant clergy or the laity in the aftermath of the Reformation and the dissolution of the monasteries, the only available sources of income for the Catholic clergy were fees charged for the administration of the sacraments and charity bestowed by well-wishers. This reliance on the laity for sustenance continued to be a source of frustration for the church authorities in Rome, who recognised that a truly independent, professionalised clergy could not be established in the absence of financial self-sufficiency. In the aftermath of the 1641 rebellion and the establishment of the Confederacy, the Vatican was adamant that the return of church property to the Catholic Church was to be a vital element of any peace settlement. Nonetheless, uh, PJ Corish, I believe, was probably accurate in his assertion that the old religion had beaten the new one in providing a dedicated ministry, and this ministry came in time to save it before it could be suffocated by government decree and the passage of time. Despite all the challenges that faced them in their efforts to operate in an illegal environment, I do believe that the Catholic clergy in South East Ireland did, to a somewhat significant degree, manage to develop as a profession and to establish a credible corporate identity for itself in the years leading up to 1641. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHope.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHope.ie website.